When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Sekudinska, hosted by Johnny Seifert. This is the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. And if you have the same mantra as me, then before we get to today's guest, please subscribe to Sekudinska whilst you're listening. And at the end of the episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on iTunes and Spotify. In this episode, you're going to hear from themes including drink and drugs, along with anxiety and depression. And if you're affected by what you hear and want more information, visit samaritans.org.uk and talk to frank.com. Now, let me tell you about my guest today. My guest is a journalist who has worked all across the media over the past 25 years, from being a TV presenter on News Thing, a radio presenter on Talk Radio and Talk Sport, an editor of Heat Magazine, a podcaster of The Reset, and the owner of 60 Billion Media Production Company. He's been a leader in showbiz, sports, and political journalism, and he has seen it all. However, in his personal life, he has had addictions to drugs and to drink. And I got to know him seven years ago, six months into sobriety. And I'm delighted he's agreed to share his vulnerabilities with me now as we look back at that time and the lessons we've learned since. And then back in 2017, I saw him as this Cockney geezer, the lad. He was cool. And I had no idea what was going on behind closed doors. And he joins me on this episode to talk about his new book, Sort Your Head Out. He says in this book that mental health is in a crossfire of cultural wars. And I'm delighted he's agreed to join me to stop the war and continue the conversation, especially around men's mental health. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome to Sukhidinska, journalist, broadcaster, and father of two, Sam Delaney. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I am all the better for seeing you, hearing you, and knowing you're out the other side. Well, Johnny, I really appreciate your kind intro and your support and interest in the book. And I was really delighted when you were when you reached out to ask me onto your great pod. So thanks, mate. Well, it's interesting for us because... Going through your book, and obviously that definitive moment in June 2015, kind of resonated with me straight away because I was thinking, well, hold on a minute. I first saw your name. The first time I knew who you were was in January 2016. And I remember seeing that name saying, Sam Delaney is joining Talk Radio. And then obviously I got to work with you over the years. And so it's weird for me now to think, well, that's only six months after everything that happened, that pinnacle moment. Mm. And then your life completely changed after that. Yeah, it's, it, it is weird. I think of starting at Talk Radio not really that long ago. Getting sober seems much longer ago to me. But when you say, oh, it's just six months into sobriety, I was like, is that right? I've got to say, 
the first couple of years of sobriety in some ways I look back on it as a bit of a blur it's true I started on the radio not that long afterwards and I had I just started my own company around the same time and I started a new TV show. So what I did was, and it's a very common trait amongst recovering addicts, is that I took on a huge amount of work. And in my mind, I thought, ah, this is like some sort of reward from the universe for me giving up drink and drugs. I've got sober and straight away, everything's fallen into place. All this, all the work that I probably wanted for a, a long time as a freelancer, I have my own radio show, my own TV show, I have my own production company. Great. Right. That's what I thought. Great. Two things about that. One is it, that's rubbish. It's, it wasn't the universe helping me. It was all just coincidence. And secondly, it was, of course, now I look back, it was obviously just a a case of substituting one addiction with another right addiction to a large extent is all about distracting yourself from your feelings or problematic thoughts right very often stuff that you've just failed to resolve from your past and you've never really learned to process negative emotions so throughout my teens 20s and 30s I'd probably overuse drink and drugs to sort of deal with those things then I knock it on the head and straight away I start using work and I was working morning, noon and night. And I've always been an overworker. In fact, that's what my next book's probably going to be about. It's about, you know, work addiction. But I look back on that period in particular when I started in 2016 on talk radio and the two years that followed where I had all this stuff on. I think I was what they call a dry drunk or other people call stark raving sober in that I was no longer putting drugs and alcohol on myself. But I hadn't done the important work of levelling myself out and getting sane. In the midst of that, we went for Father's Day dinner in a posh restaurant for my dad. And my dad was being grumpy and he started to provoke me a little bit in an argument about politics. And I snapped. And it had been a long time coming because I've always had a difficult relationship with my dad. I never lived with my dad. He left when I was a baby. But we've been close. You know, we maintained a close relationship. But I've always... He's argumentative. I'm argumentative. He can be a bit belittling. Um, I cut a long story short. I was so stressed out by overwork on the radio in particular that I snapped and it felt like years and years and years of provocation came to a head. And I stood up and I threw as the waiter arrived with his plate of liver and onions and mash, which, by the way, makes it sound like we were in a bit of a greasy spoon. But this was very, very posh liver and onions and mash. I took it out of the way to sound and I chucked it at my dad all over his crisp white shirt and he was covered in gravy and onions and offal. And then I just walked out of the restaurant and I got on my scooter and I was riding home, my Vespa, I mean, I'm, I'm riding home and it was a really hot night in the summer 2017 and I was crying whilst I was riding home because I thought I felt terrible about what I'd done. Um, I mean, I've been very provoked. He wasn't blameless, but it's not really acceptable to ever throw dinner at anyone, much less your dad, who's pushing 80. And I felt so upset. I felt so upset about our relationship. And I just felt upset about myself because I was I, I was hit, struck with enough self-awareness in that moment to think I'm burnt out. I'm behaving in an, an irrational and irregular way. This is not good. I've got a problem here. And I think I've ignored it for two years because I just kept telling myself, oh, it's fine. I don't drink or take drugs anymore, so I'm totally fine. 
but clearly I wasn't. And that wasn't the only incident. Even at talk radio, I lost my temper with people a couple of times. And I'd never really been, I never really wanted to be that kind of broadcaster, of which, as you know only too well, there are many who have big egos and shout and scream and get grumpy with their team and stuff like that. That I always don't know what you're <laughs> But I, you know, there's there are broadcasters like that, and I used to laugh about them. And then there was a couple of little moments during that era. I thought, now I'm doing it too. And it was just like, it was just too much. You know, you've got to be able to recognise in life when you're taking on too much and you've got to step back. And I didn't do that for a few years. But I would say that 2015 to 2017, I was still struggling. And it's only since 2018, and particularly during lockdown, where we were sort of forced to take a step back from our busy lives, that I started to really put the hard work in to becoming a sort of more balanced, calmer person. So those are the two sort of halves of my sobriety, really. It's interesting you pick up on the Living Bacon story. It was page 239 in your book, and I made it oh. up. For me, that was the first story where I went, that's Sam. That, that, that's where I'm starting to understand where Sam is mentally, and yeah. there has to be catalysts from that which make it up. But like you said, it's like the cherry on top of the icing of the cake that's yeah. so taking that that anecdote of the liver and the bacon why do you think you ended up like that going back all the way what was it about being in this state being having four brothers and a sister that you didn't know first of all going up being part of a single parent family a lot of the time why do you think that catalyst was that made you really go for it when you were in that moment of cracking I don't think I had a particularly tough life and certainly my childhood had more good things in it than bad so this is not a misery memoir and it's not in the least bit a kind of a, oh, well, I fell into addiction and mental illness because I had such a hard childhood. What I think is I had a childhood that was full of love and had loads of good things about it. And I've had lots of advantages in my life. However, I feel that everyone through their life has things that, that give them little cuts and bruises and that from an early age, we all learn to sort of pretend to be okay right? We try, we pretend we've got these phrases like suck it up, don't make a fuss, no one likes a winger. And so every day of your life, you're you're experiencing things like that, and you never confront them. You never talk about them to anyone else. And you never even think about them yourself, you refuse to acknowledge to yourself that these things have been damaging to you. And you never really learn about how to cope with them or process them, you just bury them, and then they fester. And I think that that's what my story is. Now, my childhood was, like I said, it was full of love. It had a lot of good things about it, but it was extremely chaotic. My dad left when I was, a, I think, you know, before I was out and that like when I was one, he went to live with, with a, a new girlfriend and we were left on a, on a council estate in Brentford, West London. My mum, who had to continue to work, she had no money. She had to work and I was basically left for a lot of the time from a young age in the care of my adolescent three older brothers who had been hit particularly hard by a divorce and kind of went off the rails. And there was a lot of drinking and, and drug taking and chaotic behaviour and fighting and whatnot. And that was the sort of him. And, and my mum was not around all the time. because She had to work in order to make ends meet. She was very emotional. We were all very emotional. Then as I got older, she would occasionally have boyfriends you know, uh, none of whom, by the way, were abusive to me or anything like that. But it was a chaotic state where you weren't quite sure 
who you know what was going on in your life or who was going to be staying in your house from one week to the next or all of these things and so it was very chaotic but I was very loved and as for my dad although he didn't live with us and he perhaps could have been a bit more supportive of us in various ways I did see him he would take me on holiday most years we would go away somewhere in the summer for a week or two and I would often see him at weekends and he would you know he made me feel like he loved me right but he also made me feel a little bit like he looked down on me or was disappointed in me because he lived he went off and lived a very different life to the one we were living and that sort of probably really fueled a huge amount of insecurity in me and the chaos that I lived in day to day probably um may contributed to my anxiety that I've had my whole life where I was always worried worrying all the time worried 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 always catastrophizing because life in my house was very volatile you never knew what was going to happen next you never knew who's going to be there you never knew if a fight was going to break out you never knew who's going to come home drunk my mum's boyfriend was a milkman was the our milkman and he was from he was like an alcoholic he was he was a Scottish guy and he, he worked for Unigate Dairies and he just moved in with us one day I couldn't believe it suddenly the milkman's living with us and he stayed for about two years he was mad um actually he was really nice to me <laughs> I wouldn't have really understood he was an alcoholic at the time so I was quite young and I used to actually do the milk rounds with him and get paid for it so I was like happy as Larry but my brothers who were older than me didn't get on with him and he ended up leaving after he had a he, he nicked my brother's ice cream and my brother went mental and they had a fight and he ended up hit my brother pulled a carving knife on him so he hit my brother and then he left disappeared my mum paid him money to move to Jersey where he got a job so that's just like a short pricey of one of the many mad things that happened in my household when I was young right so growing up I had insecurities which probably came from my dad I thought he was a bit my dad went off and had a lot of success in the advertising industry and lived a much nicer life than us and didn't really support our life and I thought when I'd see him at weekends he looked down on me a bit <laughs> I don't think he did probably but that's just how I felt because I was insecure about everything about myself and uh, I was very nervous all the time because of the volatility that I lived in my house and like a lot of lads of my generation I started drinking down the park and and smoking weed and whatnot from a very early age 12 13 right me and all my mates were like that and I it really wasn't unusual and I was never one of the worst in my social group ever ever Right. So I never. So it just seemed normal to me. All my brothers and all their mates did that. All of my mates did it. I was never in the worst. It was always people around you thought were really, oh, they've got a real problem. But I was never one of those guys. I was just someone who, you know, at the weekend would get battered in the in the local park or at a house party. But I think someone said to me when I got sober, a therapist said the point at which you start using alcohol and drugs to numb yourself from emotions. Right is the point at which you stop emotionally developing. And then when you get sober, you're still in the emotional, at the level of emotional development that you were at, at the age you started. So I, they said, so when did you start regularly taking drugs and drinking alcohol to have a good time or whatever? And I went out oh, about 12, 13. And they said, well, you're probably emotionally, in emotional terms, you're frozen at that age still. But I think that's right. Looking back seven, eight years since I was told that by a therapist, I think I was because I had no idea how to deal with good emotions or bad emotions, right? People think it's all about bad emotions. I didn't know how to deal with good emotions. My instinct, if something good happened to me, like I got a new job or my football team won or whatever, you know, I would think, right, let's go for a few beers. 
Do you know what I mean? Like so many people do in Britain, you go, that's your natural like emotional response to everything is simply let's have alcohol. You've got to face those feelings and learn about other more sustainable ways to cope with them and respond to things. And that takes a lot of doing. And I feel like I've done it now. I'm, I mean, I'm not complete by any means. I'm not perfect. But I think that I now can live a life where I don't, you know, where I can confront good times and bad with a little bit of self-confidence. Let's talk about that 12, 13-year-old Sam Delaney. Who were your role models at that point? Who were the people you were, like, aspiring to be like that you were modelling yourself on? Because, like you said, your dad, you thought, looked down on you. So was it that you had to overcompensate and impress him so that you were seen as an equal to him? Or was it your friends because it looked like they were having a lot of fun doing the weed and whatnot? Or, you know, who were you actually looking at going... That's how I want to be when I'm older. That's how I'm going to make myself. Well, my brothers would have been a huge influence on me. as My brothers were a lot older than me. So my brothers were born in... I've got three older brothers, Theo, Dom and Cass, and they were born in quick succession in 65, 67 and 68, right? So it was basically they had three kids under the age of three in the 60s, my parents, when they were still quite young. And then they didn't have any kids until 10 years later, 1975, I come along, right? So I've got these brothers who are all like a generation older than me. They're all about 10 years older than me, right? So as soon as I become sentient, let's say, as a young man, I've got these three older lads living with me. My dad's not around. So they are, they represent everything about male adulthood or they weren't adults, actually. They were adolescents at the time, but... I sort of thought that was my idea of being a, a lad, right? And they were lads and they were, they'd had a tough time because they'd lived through the divorce and that had not been a pleasant experience at all at that age, which I hadn't had to go through because I was a baby, so I wouldn't have been aware of it. And so they were really like off the rails. Like I say, drinking, fighting, taking drugs, not bunking off school, like none of them ever went to school regularly. And But I thought they were amazing. You know, I just looked up to them. I had all three of them on a pedestal in various ways. I thought they were cool. You know, they were really into like clothes and cool music and going to the football and just, you know, and they all had lots of girlfriends that they'd have around the house. And I just thought, yeah, they're great. And I think they probably now would laugh because I'd say, yeah, that was a really what awful, toxic role models. And I don't feel bad saying that because they'd laugh and say, yeah, you were right. We were messed up. You shouldn't have been looking to us as role models. But I did. I really looked up to them. I thought they were tough, cool, funny, everything. I did look up to my dad. He was a role model in a different way. But I had different personalities. And I think this is another thing that, as I've opened up about it on my podcast, I've got a couple of podcasts. One's, one's about mental health, but the other one's just sort of like a comedy podcast, but it's got a large audience called Top Flight Time Machine. And on it, I would often use stories from my childhood as comic anecdotes that would make people laugh but I did notice that when I started telling stories about my childhood and because it's funny like some of the daft things you do when you're a kid that people responded to that in a really positive way and sent me messages going it was funny but I also really connected with the or I related to that stuff that you opened up about about your dad right because in the week I went to a, I lived in a, you know social housing I went to a comprehensive school. It was rough and tumble. I spent my weekends following West Ham. 
But then I would go and I thought I was a right Jack the lad and I just wanted to drink and be one of the lads and be cocky and funny and all the rest of it. Then my dad would, every few weekends, my dad would go, right, I'm taking you for the weekend. And he'd come and pick me up in his smart car from our little council house. And we'd go to a restaurant, um, the sort of restaurant that I wasn't used to going to, right? And he would, he was a well-spoken bloke. I mean, he grew up on a council estate as well, but he, unlike me, he spent a lot of time refining himself. You know, he's well-spoken. He's very smart, well-dressed, my dad. He had friends who were similar. And I would feel really out of place. And I, I had two different personas. Well, probably more. So I'd be like, at home, I'd be trying to just be like my brothers, be one of the lads. At weekends with my dad, I'd be trying to change the way I spoke, change the way I dressed, try to impress him, try to hide the fact that really all I was interested in was watching TV and bloody eating biscuits and pretending that I was a bit more sophisticated than that because I wanted him to be proud of me. And I was convinced in my head, and I don't think this was his fault. I think that I convinced him in my head that he wasn't proud of me. And that he had a new life that was a bit, you know, that was better and that I didn't really fit into it. But quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I feel bad saying that because if he heard this, which he won't, because he doesn't really like to engage in 
the stuff that I do because I think it probably does make him upset. But I think he'd feel really bad. But I wouldn't want him to because I don't think I don't think he, he would have ever tried to make me feel that way. And I don't think he probably did feel that way about me. It's just what I thought. I look back now and I know that's how I felt. I felt really insecure because it was I was he was living in a world to one that was very different to my own. So I, in some ways, I looked up to him. He's extremely clever. He's very funny. He's kind of cool, handsome, very elegant. Lots of things that I didn't think I was. I thought it was like some sort of James Bond geezer. Well, this is the interesting thing is now, you know, the way that a man is, is so different to the way it was in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. How do you distinguish what a man is today? And I'm not talking, we're not going political about being a penis and whatnot, but um, mm-hmm. in the fact of, is it the fact of, You've got to be a man, to be a lad, you've got to drink beer, you've got to go to the football. Obviously, you enjoy going to West Ham as a fan, but mm. the way we're talking, the way the conversations are going now are very different to it just being banter. It's now, let's have a deep conversation, let's actually be vulnerable now. And I feel like the way we are as men is changing. But, you know, talking about men's mental health, like you had such an amazing conversation with Christian O'Connor on your podcast too, mm. Conversations Reset. How are those conversations as men changing now for you, Sam? Well, I've got a son who's 11. So it's a very pertinent question for you to ask me because I think about this a lot. And the sort of, the thing is, I look at him and he's in lots of ways very similar to me, right? So when I was his age, so he wants to be considered funny, right? He's very passionate about certain things, which is what I was like. I was obsessive about, if I got into something, whether that be football Or like, you know, recently I've introduced him to the Tintin books, which I loved when I was a kid. I always said, oh, that's why I wanted to be a journalist, because he he was supposed to be a journalist. That was my idea of what journalists did. Didn't quite work out that way for me when I became a journalist. But I thought, oh, and so like we went on a weekend to Bruges recently and I bought him a couple of books. And he's now he's like obsessively compiling those. He obsessively makes his own little comic books or writes stories. Another thing that I did. But. So he's got a lot of creativity, which I had when I was that age. But what he doesn't have, which I'm delighted by, is he doesn't also have that need to be considered tough. Not interested in that. He just isn't. And I consider that. I mean, I'm not saying that's as a result of my parenting, but I am taking some credit for it in my mind because I think I'm really glad that he loves football. He comes to West Ham with me and sits with me. He's got season ticket. He's passionate about that. He's got the posters on his wall. I thought being Jack the Lad meant that you were a bit tough. And I also thought it meant not just tough, like physically, like, you know, like you'd be scrapping or whatever, but also emotionally. So nothing ever touched you. You laughed everything off and you never let anyone else having a go at you appear to have an impact. Of course it has an impact. If you're not acknowledging that and you're going out your way to constantly hide it and try to be someone you're not, that really does create, in my opinion, a huge amount of mental health issues for you long term. You know, you have to learn to be yourself. It's very difficult to be yourself because you want to grow up. You want to please people every day, depending on who it is you're interacting with, you're putting on a different mask and then you get confused about who you are. I feel that my son knows who he is. Right. He's got no interest in being a tough guy. He laughs at people like that. He can still go to West Ham and hang around in the rough and tumble of all of that. He doesn't feel intimidated or or scared to be in that environment. It's just not important for him. Like, for instance, he cries quite a lot, my son. He's, he's you know, he's sensitive. I hope he won't mind me saying this publicly, but not all the time. 
But the thing is, if he hurts himself or if someone's mean, says something mean to him at school, he'll cry. I quite like that because it's not such a big problem that he's crying constantly and it's like embarrassing for him or everything. But he doesn't really feel embarrassed. Like he'll, he'll tell me about an argument he had at school. And by the way, he's in his final year at primary school, right? He's the oldest in the year. So he's the oldest in school. He's also the biggest. He's tall, right? And so he's the biggest kid as well. And yet I think he's probably the most sensitive. Like some kid will say something mean to him. Like he's, he loves animals and we've got this new kitten. And this lad is a bit of a serial bully, comes up to my lad, right? Who's the biggest in the class. And this this little scrote's just a little lad. And he went, yeah, if I see your kitten, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill it, right? Pretty crazy thing to say, threatening to kill another kid's kitten. My son, I said, what did you do? Because I'm thinking at that age, I think I would have whacked someone for saying that. I mean, that is bar, mate. He said, well, I mean, I just started crying. And I went, why? And he went, well, it was just so upsetting. What an upsetting thing to say. And I thought, he's pretty emotionally sensitive, but I'm not saying being emotionally sensitive is, is always great. But what I liked about it was the fact that he wasn't in the least bit embarrassed by that. I'm not saying I want him to go for his whole life crying every time someone says something rude, because that would just be create a lot of inconvenience for him, frankly. He seems comfortable with showing his emotions in a way that I never was. I, and I suspect I'm not unique in this at all, became an expert from childhood onwards at pretending to be okay. I never wanted to show any signs that I was bothered by anything. I wanted everything to seem like it was water off a duck's back to me. And so instead, I kept all of these problems inside that create a lot of loneliness and a lot of shame, feelings of shame inside me. I hope he won't grow up with all of that. So I see good signs that, you know, young men are growing up a little bit more chill now and with less emphasis on trying to be the tough guy all the time. So where do you think that comes from that your son thinks it's okay to be vulnerable? Because you've obviously taught him something amazing, that it's okay to show your emotions. I think that I have tried to talk to him explicitly about it. Although, as you correctly say, kids on the whole find that really boring. And so, uh, I mean, they're actually, my kids are at stage now, my daughter's 15. And I go, listen, mate, if you're feeling bad about this, that's okay. It's normal to feel bad about it. And if you want to talk to me or anyone else, you know, you should feel free. And they go, oh, God, not this again. Yeah, we get it, Dad. Right. It's almost like boring mental health, Dad. So talking about explicitly kind of works. Maybe it goes inside. He absorbs it a bit. I don't know. But I, I hope that more powerful is just being a role model and me never doing that thing that I guess I must have. My dad was never like this. My dad was never like, oi, toughen up. You've got to be tough. I don't want to see you crying. He, wa he wasn't like that. You know, I wasn't living with my dad. It makes a big difference if you're living with someone full time. There, He wasn't particularly emotionally open either. If I'd said to him, I'm upset about something, don't get me wrong. I think my dad would have certainly listened and, and sympathised. And I don't think he would have ever been like what my dad was less about being tough, tough and more about being intelligent and rational. And I think that, you know, the thing about emotions, feelings is that they're not rational, are they? You can feel worried about something that there's very little rational chance will happen. Who hasn't woken up in the midnight convincing themselves that that ache they've got in their in the side of their head, right, is going to be a tumour? Like, you know, you worry about mad health things in the middle of the night or 
blokes of my age wake up in the middle of the night convincing themselves that the tax man's going to come and say that they've made a mistake of like mad things that people worry about all the time and that's anxiety we all worry about that probably isn't worth worrying about and our and the rational side of our minds know that it's not worth worrying about but unfortunately feelings and emotions you don't you know that doesn't we don't they don't listen to the rational part of your mind i always give the example is you can fly on the plane you can understand the science of how the plane flies and why it's extremely unlikely to fall out of the sky and yet in spite of all of that even some of the most intelligent scientists in the world can still have debilitating fear of flying it's irrational so my dad is the sort of guy who the worst insult he can give is that you're being irrational and so that would be the only thing with my dad. He wouldn't say toughen up. I want you to be a tough guy, but he would want you to be intelligent. And I think that probably expressing feelings and emotions that aren't strictly rational would to him seem like a sign of being unintelligent. And I was, I really wanted my dad to think I was intelligent because I thought I knew that he placed so much importance on that. And so that was my relationship with my dad. My son, I, you know, I don't put that kind of pressure on him at all. You know, I just don't put that pressure on him at all. I don't I don't speak about irrational emotions in a disdainful way. I talk about them in a not a positive way, but I I just try to normalize them, i.e. when something bad happens, you feel sad and you cry. Sometimes you feel sad and cry when nothing bad has happened. You just feel that way and you're not even sure why you feel that way. It's almost like that's fine, too, because that happens to everyone. And so if you're just in that mood at the moment, go with it. Don't feel ashamed of it. It will pass. And maybe I'll say, here's some ideas on how you might help it pass quicker. Or maybe I'll just say that it will pass. But what I don't say is, listen, this is mad. Why are you feeling like this? You shouldn't be feeling like this. I kind of go with, this is how you feel. That's fine. Don't worry about it. It's part of being human. We all have these feelings. The only difference is some people are confident enough to show them. And some people are not confident enough to show them. And I feel bad for those people because they're keeping it all inside and it chews them up eventually. I'm not saying indulge it. I'm not saying the moment you wake up a bit tired and miserable, you should moan at everyone and stay in bed and not bother going to work or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying understand what you're going through. Acknowledge it. Look at it. See it. Don't be ashamed of it. Know that we all have ups and downs. And very often there is no explanation for the down days. They just happen. Just like there's no explanation sometimes for catching a cold. It's just something you wake up with. You have it and you think, this is a downer, but I know it won't last forever. It will go soon. Those are the kind of things I'm trying to teach my son, either explicitly or just through examples. And also, by the way, I respond to him when he does get emotional. And But I also would say, Johnny, is that, you know, the things that influence him culturally are more positive in that sense than the things that influence me culturally. I'll give you an example. His favourite television show in the world is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, really funny sitcom set in a police department in Brooklyn. It's very funny and it's sort of funny, anarchic, really great. It's, an, it's for adults, really, but he's always loved it and he watches it obsessively. They don't portray the cops as tough guys and none of the humour is insensitive and it's actually very inclusive and it's very diverse and all the rest of it. 
doesn't come across as politically correct or woke, by the way. It's very funny and it is very anarchic and it makes near the knuckle jokes. I watch it with him because I find it very funny too. And I can see the way that they just portray characters in very subtle ways as being emotionally vulnerable, but don't portray that as being a big deal or a negative. When I was a kid, I guess I watched the A-Team and my hero was probably B.A. Baracus or the Face Man. And they were much more two-dimensional characters. One's a handsome womanizer, and the other one's just a six foot five muscly lunatic. And I thought those were the two great sort of totem poles of masculinity that I could aspire to. I think that young blokes growing up today, I think my son has a more wide variety of positive male role models. It's not not just me. I think that everywhere he looks, I mean, we support West Ham. His favourite player is Declan Rice. Declan Rice is an ambassador for Calm and talks very, he doesn't drink and he talks very openly about mental health and being vulnerable. And I don't know of any footballer when I was a kid who was like that. They wouldn't have dared. So my son has got a, a lot of good role models in the wider world as well as at home, I think. And so, like you said, it's the conversations, it's the communication. Also for yourself, you've got your podcast, you've got your book, you've got your writing that you do. That's very external. What do you internally do? What do you do when you're Sam Delaney on your own with those thoughts to rationalise them? What are those self-care routines that you have to make sure that you stay on the rational side rather than the irrational side? One thing I do is I observe myself being irrational. So if I get frustrated, grumpy, anxious, or upset what I am able to do now because I still get those things the thing is not to try and eradicate those feelings right because if if that's what your mission is you will fail because you're a human being and and we all get those feelings the deal is to know how to cope with them and the first step to coping with them is to acknowledge them so I know that I can get very anxious very quickly and it can only take something small like a small bit of bad luck or a small setback to sometimes trigger me going into a big spiral where, you know, I extrapolate the situation until I'm imagining myself, everything's going to fall apart. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my home. I'm going to lose my job. You know, like mad things. If I see that happening now, I think, oh, I can see that's about to happen. And I can think, right, okay, I can't necessarily stop this happening, but I can be aware that I'm about to go through a period of thinking pretty negative thoughts that are pessimistic and worrying and I can feel my brain drifting in that direction so if that's the way it's going to go I just need to remind myself this is what happens to me sometimes and it will pass and try your best to ignore those thoughts and not to indulge them I suppose before I'd been through therapy and getting sober and all the other things that I've done to work on my mental health I might have seen those worrying, troubling thoughts coming along and really gone with them and thought, I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job. And it's really good that I'm worried because the worry will motivate me to do something about it and take action and be proactive to stop these bad things happening to me. Now I don't do that. Those thoughts are deceptive. They're not real. I'm not going to indulge them. I'm not going to take action on them. And I'm more going to have faith in the fact that A, these thoughts will eventually pass. B, that bad thing that my brain's trying to tell me is going to happen probably won't happen. And C, this is the crucial bit, even if it does, screw it. I know I'll be able to deal with it when it does. So that's faith in yourself, right? I'm 47, been through quite a lot in my life, my career. And it's like, whatever happens, you have to start thinking, I can deal with that. And you start to look back on your life. And sometimes by writing this book, for instance, I've like, catalogued all the little setbacks or things that have hurt me over the years and 
I've looked back and I sort of felt, to be honest, I felt quite proud of myself. I thought, oh, that would have, that was quite tough when I was a little boy and I had to put up with that. But look, I got through it and I did all right in life. So I must be doing something right. I must have some inner strength. And that means that whatever's around the corner, I'll be able to deal with it and I'll just deal with it when it comes. But what I'm not going to do is waste time thinking about bad things because if it happens, I suppose what it is, is there's a, there's a quote from Mark Twain saying, I'm an old man and in my life I've had many, many worries, few of which have actually happened because he's saying all these problems that I've had in my life, 99% of them existed only in my head. And that's true of most of us. You know, you just have to remember that, but you also have faith in yourself. What a way to finish, Sam. I can't thank you enough for that. And it's so true what you say. I mean, my paranoia has been in overdrive recently, absolutely overdrive. And mm. I've booked a holiday to it's just reset completely. And I needed that. Like today, especially, I needed that quote from you. So I can't thank you enough for that. Um, final question for you, Sam. How's your life changed since the book's come out? Sort your head out. It's been out for nearly a month now. Obviously, friends, family, people who are around you, who know you have started to read the book, they might not have known everything that's happened to you. How has it affected you, though, in the past month? Well, I've been totally overwhelmed by the positive responses to it, both by people I, I know and love and complete strangers. I didn't know how people react. I suppose my worst nightmares would be that my family and friends and people who are close to me who I write about in the book would be upset or take offence. And the uh, people I didn't know would look at him and think, oh, what's he bloody moaning on about? What's he got to moan about? Those were my two probably deepest, darkest fears. I wasn't dwelling on them, to be honest. I couldn't afford to. Like I just said, I don't tend to dwell on this shit. But if I'd really dug down deep, those would have been things. Two of my older brothers got in touch and said, one of them said it had moved him to tears and he thought it was brilliant. The other one just said he'd read it twice and he loved every word. And I said... I hope you think it's fair because I didn't want to give an unfair reflection of a life that we all lived. And they said it's fair. And I was delighted by that. And then, you know, just strangers pretty much every day, to be honest, I'm getting messages over social media or email saying how much they love the book. There's people saying things like you've given me the incentive I need to address my own mental health or like get sober or whatever, whatever. And I have been absolutely like knocked out by it, Johnny, knocked out. Like, you know, I've published three books before. They did all right. They weren't as personal as this one. But I used to be very kind of, um, I never wanted to look like I was showing off and I'd be very self-effacing when people gave me praise. And I've kind of discovered sincerity in middle age. And now I'm just like, I'm not ashamed to admit the fact that the fact that people have said that this book's touched them and it's helped them. I am absolutely unashamedly delighted by that. And that's why I wrote it. So I'm just happy that that's what it's doing, you know. Sam Delaney, I can't thank you enough. Your book, Sort Your Head Out, is out to buy. Now the Reset podcast is an amazing podcast. Go and check that out as well. And if you love talk radio and you love the old school talk radio presenters, Harriet Minter, Anna Williamson and Jamie East have been on Security and Security in the past. And if you need any more information about what Sam's spoken about, talk to frank.com, samaritans.org.uk. Go and check out those websites. And if you enjoyed this episode of Security and Security, please on iTunes, give it a five-star rating and a review and click subscribe. And the same on Spotify as well. I'm Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.